Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you are just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Coming up, we have a very special show featuring two of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's leaders over the past decade and beyond. First, we'll speak with Kevin Riley, who retired as the AJC's top editor just a few weeks ago. Then we'll hear from Leroy Chapman who is succeeding Kevin in the new role. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a special episode with a special guest, Kevin Riley. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. It is great to be here with you, too. As a faithful listener, I'm just kind of sad I had to quit my job to get a chance to be on your show. But other than that, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Patricia, he warned me he was going to make that joke. <laughs> and you were warned and you've been served. Well, Kevin, we want to talk to you a little bit about your, your main, you know, your favorite experiences, your not-so-favorite experiences at the AJC. But I know you've seen a lot over your career at the AJC and, and, and Dayton Daily News. But I just want to know, first off, what was your sort of welcome to the AJC moment when you got to Atlanta? You know, this is one of my favorite stories to tell, and it involves our our sports writers, and it was uh, great fun. I, you know, uh, you probably don't remember this, of course, because you weren't with us when I came. I mean, one of my, you know, the real feathers in among the feathers in my cap are that I hired both of you during my tenure, and I take complete and total credit for that, <laughs> even though uh, others uh, really did the hard work of, of recruiting you. But so uh, a crazy thing that happened shortly after I came. In about, I think it was late March, early April of 2011 when I came, Georgia Tech fired their basketball coach, and they hired a new coach. And the new coach was the coach from the University of Dayton, who was someone I knew and knew pretty well. So um, I decided I would go to the press conference when they introduced him. And so I uh, showed up down at Tech, and uh, all of our sports, you know, our sports writing crew was there. And they were all, you could see them looking at me from across the room, like, what is he doing here? What is he doing here? The new guy's here. What's going on? brother's here. Yeah, yeah. And so then as I kind of came in uh, as the coach, Brian Gregory and his uh, wife were kind of in the green room off the side getting ready. They saw me and they came out and uh, Brian shook my hand and his wife gave me a hug. And then the sports writers were like, what is going on here? You know, Uh, and and I just told Brian, I, I said, hey. I know what it's like to come to Atlanta and have at least one friendly face in the crowd. That's why I came. 
you know, and that was the only, only reason. And then I, you know, I, it, it led me to me being, becoming a Georgia Tech basketball fan for that reason. Brian was later fired and because of uh, that's what happens to college basketball coaches, of course. But then um, I wrote a short, uh, two funny things happened. I, I wrote a short column about it. It was sort of the first thing I wrote uh, for the AJC about what kind of guy he was and what I knew about him. And uh, I ran it past Steve Hummer, you know, our sort of mm-hmm. legendary sports writer uh, who's recently retired. Uh, and so it helped me kind of build a relationship with those guys. It was fun. But here's the best part of what happened. So uh, a little bit after that, I was invited to sort of a, a get-to-know-you session with the president of Georgia Tech. And as we were kind of gathering in his office and his vice presidents were coming in and that, he, we were just chatting. And he told me, you know, Brian Gregory had the strangest buyout in his contract. And that uh, buyout required, and, it, you know, for those non-college basketball fans, when you go hire a coach, they usually have a long-term contract and you have to pay out that contract to get them to come to your school. It's kind of the way it works. But uh, the president, Bud Peterson, told me, hey, uh, it was the strangest thing. We had to agree to play Dayton in a home-and-home series. And I knew just because Dayton's a mid-major basketball program, they're always trying to schedule schools from the big conferences Mm -hmm. to play them at home, and then they'll go play there. So I knew that was huge news in Dayton. So I excused myself to go to the bathroom, called the sports editor in Dayton, and said, hey, Brian, I've got it from the president of Georgia Tech that they've agreed to home and home with Dayton. (laughs) Or with, you know, (laughs) which was huge news there. (laughs) And so Brian, the sports editor there, I think, called the athletic director in Dayton and said, hey, we have this. I just want to make sure, you know, you want to confirm it. And then by the time I left that meeting and got back to the office, it was a top story on their website. (laughs) So it was just kind of a fun funny moment. And I tell it because as you two know, as really good reporters and journalists, the, often that's kind of how you get a big story or a good scoop. It's just kind of in an incidental conversation where you can um, you know, then go find something out. So I, I just, I always, I love to tell that story to my uh, college basketball fan friends. So Kevin, the reason that you knew that basketball coach who had been at the university of Dayton before is because you were at the Dayton newspaper that Cox also owned um, before you came here to the AJC. And you had a long career in journalism before you came to the AJC in Dayton. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into the Cox kind of quote family and um, what drew you to journalism in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I've told this story a few times. Um, I, I I had always been interested in journalism. I worked on my high school paper, and I was working on college paper. And I was, but I remember when I made the decision. I was sitting in a class. I was a pre-law major, sitting in a political science class at the University of Dayton, where I was in school, because I'm a native Clevelander and went to school in Dayton, which is about 200 miles away. And uh, I was sitting there, and this professor is like droning on and on, and I thought oh my God, six more years of school. I am never going to make it. I got to do something else. And so I switched my major <laughs> and uh, I worked on a student paper there, you know, and, and it was a very different experience than I think both of you had in college because Dayton doesn't have like a separate journalism school and it's not the kind of place where people, you know, would necessarily pick if they wanted to go to the top journalism school in Ohio or anything like that. But it turned, it worked out well for me. And I ended up getting a part-time job as a senior in college on the copy desk of the Dayton Daily News. And that's really what got me started. And um, I had no idea what a tremendous organization I was 
joining when I showed up there. It was just a job and me trying to get experience in the field, but it was really quite the, uh, quite the great place to work. Kevin, one moment that's always stood out to me since I joined the AJC and my interactions with you actually didn't happen in Atlanta. I don't even know if you remember this, but it was in Cleveland in 2016 during the Republican National Convention. And then as now, we had been giving some tough coverage of the Georgia Republican Party. And at the time, the battle over Donald Trump's nomination, tensions were very high. You were along with that trip. And they asked you to speak to the delegates. And I was kind of holding my breath in the fifth or sixth row of whatever hotel conference room we were in because things were really fraught at the time. I remember you you put the room at ease. Can you talk about an editor's role in going into rooms where sometimes you're beloved and sometimes you're not so beloved? How yeah. do you kind of navigate that? Well, a couple of things. First, you know, uh, just uh, for the sake of your listeners, I went up to Cleveland for the 2016 convention because I just couldn't resist and I could stay there for free at my sister's house. So um, Susan Potter, our, our political letter, got me credentials so that I could uh, run around and, and uh, pretend like I was covering the convention. Um, really, I was just having a good time. And I took Greg on a little tour of Cleveland, yep. including to Little Italy for lunch. And uh, we had a big time there. And we, I remember, I remember filing being, in the Uber, <laughs> some <yeah>. breaking story. <laughs> <laughs> we were, um, uh, we were at the, you know, the Republican or the Georgia delegation every morning would have a breakfast and, uh, we would, we would go, um, and, and they would sort of start the breakfast out by, uh, dumping on you know, Greg stories or Galloway stories or, you know, whatever was going on. It was like a ritual, you know? And um, we were sitting with uh, Leo Smith, who at that time, I think, I forget exactly what his role was, but he had a key role. And uh, one of the speakers made some remark about us maybe not willing to come or uh, defend our coverage or anything like that. And I looked at Leo and I said, oh, I'll talk. Go ahead. I'll, I'll talk about it. And he went up to the front of the room. Next thing you knew, I was at the podium. And uh, so I, I always have considered that sort of thing very, very important right? That the editor of the paper be there when things are good, when things are bad, when things are easy, when things are hard. And I remember what I talked about because one of the way, I love a hostile crowd. I love a hostile room. I enjoy that experience and always have. And one of the things I did was I talked about my dad being a Cleveland police officer. And you'll remember how tense it was about um, potential violence and law enforcement, and they had all these cops in the streets and stuff. And so uh, what I tried to do was, you know, remind the delegation that we were there to do a job just like they were, and and that this was a very challenging and emotional time for us. And it, for me personally, it was really a, a, a thing to be there in the, the town where I grew up and to show people around and and talk a little bit about what it was like to grow up there and make sure people saw parts of town that I, and understood the place in the way that I understood it. And I think, uh, as you'll recall, Greg, a lot of Georgians were impressed with Cleveland. Yes, including me. I still have a shirt from there. <laughs> Kevin, you have been the leader of the AJC during some really good times and then also some really tough times, not just for the paper, but for city. And I started with the AJC during COVID. And so um, I had met you before I came to the AJC, but you had already, by the time I came on board, created an entirely virtual newsroom. You had continued printing the paper, even when it was very unclear how that was going to be done. What are some of the 
events that you look back on leading the paper uh, that really stand out for you, both good and bad? Yeah, I mean, I'll go to the COVID story because it was such a huge deal and it was so disruptive and uh, for, you know, not I mean, obviously for everybody and for us to do our jobs. And I was, all, I was very concerned about our newsroom because, um, and you know, I've, I've told other people this, you can, you know, journalists will, will go into some difficult situations, coverage situations, whether it's, you know, dealing with the Republican delegation at a convention or, you know, a homicide scene or, you know, anything like that. But it's really hard when they can't leave the story behind. And that was the situation with COVID. We were covering it and living it. And it was also a crucial time for our community to be able to depend on us. So that was really the time when I was, I have to say, I was proudest of our work because we were, we never missed a beat. We were working really hard to make sure we gave people solid information about what was really going on and what they needed to do to keep themselves safe. And we were holding leaders accountable and we were explaining how leaders were making their decisions and letting people you know, disagree or agree with with those decisions. So to me, that was our finest moment in my 12-year tenure, and I will always be very, very proud of it. Um, and we kind of have a book to commemorate that, as you guys know, where we compiled uh, our work and the daily notes, and, and we have like a daily diary of, of it. And so that's always been a really uh, great moment, really great moment for me and something that I'm proud of. Um, you know, a difficult moment. Uh, you know, we the hardest thing for me was was always the same. We we went through some very difficult financial times, as did our whole industry. And there were times when we had to, I had to tell people that we were, you know, going to eliminate some jobs, and we tried to do that as fairly and as honestly and straightforwardly as we can, as we could. But it's hard, still hard to do. There's nothing like great or fun about that. But I think, again, that's where if you're going to lead a newsroom, that's when the editor's needed, you know? The editor's not really needed running around at the Republican convention, kind of getting in your way (laughs) if it's not buying your dinner or something, right? He is needed or she is needed during the hardest times to make sure people understand, here's what we're going to do, here's why we're going to do it, here's where we're going to focus, because that's the job of leadership. And you don't get to pick the circumstances in which you lead. I mean, one of the things I did during the pandemic was reread Ralph McGill's biography. And what I what I saw, what I felt and learned as I read it again was the guy made a lot of mistakes, but what he did was persist. He showed mm-hmm. up every day. When he got something wrong, he'd try again. And I think that's the job of a good leader and a good newsroom leader because you just can't be right all the time and you can't be afraid of being wrong. Well, Kevin, I want to ask you a follow-up to Patricia's question, because as editor, you've navigated a lot, a lot we in the newsroom knew about, a lot we probably still don't know about, layoffs, verticals that came and went, a wedding with WSB that was kind of called off at the altar, a two-website strategy that is no longer. Tell me kind of what your management philosophy was through all that. Yeah, I mean... Some of it's become clear now as we've watched how the internet has uh, come and gone, how social media has affected things and come and gone and, you know, all of this stuff. Um, I think in the end, it comes down to a simple thing, and it's the journalism. You have got to make sure that what your staff as a leader is producing, what a newsroom is doing is of value and meaningful and does the basics, which includes, you know, holding people accountable making sure people uh, can find out 
what's really going on, as we like to say. That is, no matter what happens, that will be the job of a journalist. No matter what the delivery mechanisms are, that will be the job. And uh, you two know that. I mean, political coverage has changed a lot. I mean, you're doing a podcast, um, and we weren't talking about that when when you first came to the paper, Greg, yep. and now it's become part of, you know, routine part of your job. But in the end, it's the information that you provide people so that they can make their decisions about how to vote and what policies they're going to support. That's what we have to do. And whether they they come to us directly at our website in print through social media, if we're not doing that, we're not going to be around very long. And I, whenever, whenever times got tough, you know, and the water got kind of deep, I would just remind myself, well, when in doubt, stick with the fundamentals. Let's ride this out and see, you know, see where we get after that. Kevin, are there any stories or series that stick out for you from your time editing the paper? Because I'm not sure if our listeners really understand what a role you play in the newsroom and have played um, in terms of developing talent, hiring people, giving a green light to stories that may be tough or unpopular, making sure that you've got the right kind of staffing in the places where you feel like the newsroom really needs it. Um, And part of that is also a lot of the in-depth coverage that the AJC does that not all newspapers have the ability to do. We also uh, sometimes break stories that people are not excited to read about. Uh, Sometimes, you know, share information about heroes that people would rather not know about. Um, But what are some stories that you look back on and are extremely proud of being a part of? Well, when we did the series about uh, doctors sexually abusing their patients, um, that was a there, there are several things that are important about that. The most important thing is through all of the uh, difficult times in the industry, through all of the change, through all of the uh, uncertainty, we always said we're going to stick with good investigative reporting, that we would invest there and make sure we were always capable of it. And so that's, you know, that's why that series could be done. We had people in position to do it who worked hard at it. And then the we also invested in uh, what we called then computer-assisted reporting. Now it's usually referred to as data journalism, where we had the capability to analyze massive amounts of records, to look at trends and all of that. And then the big decision there was to do a nationwide story, to show that if we were going to report on this, it wasn't enough to just explain what was going on in Georgia, because one of the key findings of the series was that when doctors are more or less caught sexually abusing their patients. They just simply resign and agree to go to another state where they get licensed again and sort of it it happens again. So that story is one I'm I'm really, really proud of. Now, part of that, and and you guys, uh, I think, have heard this from me before, but uh, we had this interesting decision to make because we got a call from Dr. Oz when he was uh, doing his show. Mm -hmm. And... um, Pre-Senate candidate, Dr. Oz. <laughs> yeah, now this was pre-Senate. Yeah, this was way before he decided he would he would consider going into politics. And we had this debate about, uh, should we go on that show to talk about that series? And uh, where we ended up after a lot of discussion was that I, as the editor, would go on and I would be prepared and I would be pretty, pretty, um, like, I would just say determined to stick with what, we thought we should communicate. And the idea being simple, that we thought we would get to many more people than we could get through just by publishing it in print and on our website. 
that way and draw attention to what was a huge issue. So you can find clips of me on the set at Dr. Oz and going there to do the show was quite the experience. Um, I don't really don't have time to go into it now with your listeners, but uh, maybe we'll do that another time. I'll, I'm angling to come back on the podcast. Amen. Too. Yeah. Uh, because um, doctor, you could, I, I will say this. I understand why many people thought Dr. Oz could be a great candidate. Because when you watched him operate before an audience as you participated as a panelist in that show, you saw someone who had that ability to connect. And Patricia, you talked about that a lot on this podcast, about how some people are just bad candidates, you know. But I'm sure someone looked at him and said, this guy could be a really good candidate. But then we saw what happened. Politics is a little more complicated than, um, you know, running a TV show uh, where you're the star. Kevin, since you mentioned politics, I want to get your read of where things stand in Georgia, you, you've obviously been more involved than most uh, Georgians in the state's political scene. What do you think we should be most watching for the, the over the next uh, this next campaign and beyond? Well, um, you know, Patricia and I had breakfast a, a little while ago, and we, and we talked about this. Um, and understand, let me preface my remarks. Uh, you know, I've mentioned I'm from Ohio, so I have you know I grew up in a, in the Rust Belt time in, in that state. And one of the most amazing things about coming to Atlanta and Georgia is the prosperity and all the possibilities uh, before this community and state. And that's what I think we should be thinking about. I think that if you really step back, what do we have in Georgia and Atlanta? We have an era of unprecedented prosperity, unprecedented job growth, unprecedented budget surpluses, and on and on. And this is the time for a state, the state to make great leaps forward and to invest in its future and to say, we are going to be the top uh, state in this country in which to live and in which to do business and in which to be educated and in which to be uh, cared for in our, in, in our healthcare system. And I worry that we're squandering that by getting caught up in small-minded politics and thinking about the next campaign and not putting all of those resources to use. And I worry that we will wake up in a generation or so and really regret that we did not seize that opportunity in the way that other states have in their histories. And um, and I would cite the cheap shot at the higher ed system in the budget uh, process as part of that. There is no question that Georgia has accomplished great things over the past 10 to 15 years with its the stature of its university system and how that stature has grown. And I don't understand why someone in a leadership job, in a leadership position, would not feel like we have got to keep that going. There's no reason we shouldn't have the best flagship state university in the country. And those are the things I think about all the time. Uh, Kevin, before we let you go, and of course, we're going to have you come back on the podcast soon. Um, so that kind of thinking and wisdom that you just laid out there reminds me that you have talked about doing some writing for the AJC, possibly some occasional columns. Ralph McGill used to write a column every day when he was the editor of the AJC, no pressure. Um, but are you going to be doing some writing and what are you going to be doing now that um, Leroy Chapman has taken the helm of the AJC officially? 
Yeah, I know that Leroy's going to be uh, on next here. So um, now that I've been able to saddle him with all of the hard work of being the editor, and I'm I'm free to uh, pursue some other things, I am looking for a chance to do some columns and uh, maybe you know pursue a few other things that I can do. So, um, but I will let you know that uh, if I uh, if I'm uh, gonna <laughs> gonna be able to do that, and uh, I will look forward to it and talking to you guys about it. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on Politically Georgia Podcast. And uh, congratulations again on the retirement. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, I'm around. I've, I've got time. I mean, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm one of your top listeners, as you probably know. And, and uh, let me just say this before, before we go. I, uh, I mentioned that you two have both joined the staff since uh, I, I took the job as editor. And um, I want you to know how much I appreciate the hard work, this podcast, how dedicated both of you are. And I'm proud to have been part of bringing you to the paper and proud that you represent us out there, uh, both uh, at the state level and uh, many times on a national level on television, but never on the Dr. Oz show. I've always (laughs) had that over you. You have that and you have Stelter too. Back in those days. Yeah. Well, Kevin, again, thank you so much. Thanks, and Kevin. we did not we did not pay him to say that. <laughs> <laughs> we will pay him tomorrow. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at daytonabeach.com. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're not only uh, two of the hosts of this podcast, we're also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, along with our colleague, AJC Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell. The Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And you can get three months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar, just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Okay, listeners, in this special episode, we just heard from outgoing AJC editor Kevin Riley. Now we have the new AJC editor-in-chief. Is that your actual title, Leroy Chapman? Is that you editor-in-chief or editor or executive editor? It's editor-in-chief, and um, I have to explain a little bit. Uh, I've never asked for a title ever. (laughs) So you think about you reach the summit of your career, because I don't think there's a bigger or better job in journalism than this one. You you reach the summit of your career, and they ask you, well, what should your title be? And I just defer to uh, others to say, well, uh, you know, whatever you'd like it to be. (laughs) So... (laughs) In doing that, uh, I am now editor-in-chief. Uh, I don't know what that necessarily says about anyone else uh, on the org chart, but uh, it certainly does, I think, 
from the thinking is that it um, just speaks to where I sit uh, in the newsroom hierarchy. And I call my bosses, 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 <laughs> boss. Well, Leroy, I wanted to ask you the same question I asked Kevin a few minutes ago, which was after you arrived in Atlanta from South Carolina, what was your welcome to the AJC moment? What was sort of the, the moment where you, re- you realized that the AJC is a different sort of place? It's a special <laughs> kind of place in our, in our hearts. Wow. You know, that is a good question. There were several things. So when I got here, we were still in the midst of the aftermath of the test cheating case. So we had local reporters and investigative reporters working uh, around uh, everything that the, the impact of that case is, was felt and is still being felt, really, because when you think about all of the laws that have been sort of changed, the criminal case, uh, which was unusual. So so that one was the welcome to the AJC moment because this was local journalism that had um, extraordinary impact. Uh, if you remember that case, it was about uh, some astute reporters looking at data saying that this just does not have the ring of truth. So, you know, it's a very simple principle, right, for a journalist to look at something and say this doesn't have the ring of truth. And when it began unraveling, it unraveled bigger than anybody could ever imagine. So when I got here, it was one, uh, having to consume all of that journalism and also, you know, leading uh, at a certain moment the, the criminal, uh, co- the coverage of the criminal case, which, of course, divided this community in ways that would just, I think, there's still a legacy of that. Exactly. I mean, still, still dealing with the community fallout because in hindsight, you know, that, that reporting was spot on. But at the time, there was a lot of uh, advocates and, and teachers groups and others who were very critical of that reporting. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And so when you when you think about well, welcome to the AJC, uh, what it what it told me as someone who was coming from South Carolina, my job in South Carolina before I got here, I was the politics editor. So I was dealing with uh, state house coverage, dealing with all of the presidential politics that come with being an early voting state. Um, I have a love for local reporting, and that's reporting on local government, uh, local law enforcement, those things. So when I got here to see that the AJC had both in spades. It had uh, really good politics reporting that was elevated, but also very good reporting of local institutions. Leroy, I'm glad you mentioned your history with the state, the capital city of South Carolina, of course, and uh, the first in the South primary and a state of full of political intrigue. Uh, so you're a political junkie. You're also the top editor of the AJC. What are you most closely watching in terms of political trends in Georgia, what most intrigues you about our state's political dynamic, and what are you what are you looking forward to most in the twenty twenty four campaign? <laughs> well, uh, I think it all uh, begins and ends with uh, President Trump because that's the the uh, wild card. Of course, uh, will he be ultimately the nominee? Uh, will there be uh, an embrace or a rejection of Trumpism? And I think you guys have talked about that all along with. You know, what are the what are the, the signs of that? I mean, if we're looking at uh, Georgia being a place that is, you know, like much of the country where Republicans still are pretty loyal to Donald Trump. But obviously we had some election results which say that Trumpism, you know, did not win when Brian Kemp was at the top of the ticket and um, he was challenged by a Trump proxy and, and, and it didn't. It seemed like a rejection. So uh, I think that is the the question. And also think this too. I think uh, what happens in Georgia is going to have is going to reverberate uh, across the country uh, in terms of that. 
So I, I'm very interested in that. And I think the second thing, too, is just some of the demographic shift that has slowly, and I think it's coming to a head, too, when you think about the power of the Sun Belt and Georgia being the, uh, you know, if you're talking about east of Mississippi, you know, the, the state, the key state uh, in the Sun Belt. And um, I think that's going to show up nationally and it's going to show up, uh, you know, of course, it always shows up south of us in Florida. <laughs> but I'm also thinking about just regionally too that that impact on national politics. Um, so as a South Carolinian, I watched it, too. But uh, now sitting here uh, looking to uh, our, our the west of us and, and, and looking at the Sun Belt, uh, I'm also looking at that demographic shift, too, because there are a lot of things that are going to motivate vote, including, of course, our economy, which always animates every sort of election. And the Sun Belt is a place, too, where you look at how the economy is going to affect politics. So that's that's what I'd be looking at. Leroy, it's so interesting for you to have come out of a political background. But of course, the newspaper needs to cover so much more than just politics. And I think a challenge that we have in journalism, and it seems like it's really up to the editor to sort of unwind it, is this tendency to silo information, silo topics. How are you approaching Atlanta and Georgia as this fast-growing, dynamic, economically changing, uh, demographically changing, um, really leading city for the future. How do you think about that in terms of producing the kind of journalism that really matches the direction that Atlanta is heading in? Yeah. So one of the things that we want to do is become indispensable, right? So I think in politics, there are people who have a stake in politics that's, of course, beyond just voting, right? We want to make sure the electorate is informed, but there's politics as uh, it relates to our institution, also politics as a business. So that's always going to be a big part of what we do. But if you're thinking about if you're doing what we're doing, right? So we're making this pivot point from all the traditions of a, a legacy news organization, and we're really incorporating uh, the technology and the smarts of a startup. So we want to go deep with people who have uh, an affinity for uh, what we do. And so what it means is that I think there are some vital topics that we can lead this, this community on, um, partly our economy. Uh, that's another thing I think that we'll make some investment in. Uh, I think about uh, what that means for education, for job preparedness, for investment. Um, if you're thinking about uh, helping people cope in a place that is dynamic in a lot of ways, especially economically, uh, that it's really important thing. So if you think about the livability of the city, uh, it's the economy is important, uh, housing, and we've devoted a great deal to housing because that's going to determine, you know, how the city builds and how it thrives and prospers. So that's part of it as well. Uh, so, you know, in some, uh, I think that we can do uh, both the public service work of a mission-driven newspaper that looks at things like livability and uh, economic opportunity and how in our institutions are serving us. But I think furthermore, we can also just go deep on some topics that will hook readers and bring them into the broader AJC because we will continue to be uh, a, a news organization that provides uh, a great deal of coverage across a broad section of topics. But we know that there are some topics that are pretty important that will bring people in. And once we bring them in, we maybe expose them to the rest of it. And really, there are benefits to that. I mean, if people, it's no different from a newspaper. 
back uh, the one that my, my grandparents and my parents had. Um, why you bought a newspaper might be because you were really only interested in one part of it, <laughs> but you had the benefits of the other parts. Whenever you needed it, you got it. And so that principle hasn't changed that dramatically. It's just that our habits have. Leroy, I want to ask you about the moment when you were hired. It was this dramatic moment in the newsroom and our <laughs> colleague, Ernie Suggs, he took what, what to me has become this iconic picture of you getting an ovation, um, <laughs> you know, in that conference table room, but it also became a symbol of something else. Because it reminded folks that you're the first black editor in our publication storied history, and every other face in that picture was white. Yes. Now, that picture wasn't necessarily reflective of the entire newsroom. It was you know, the folks who happened to show up early. But it also underscores the challenge that you and leadership and that we as a newsroom f- face to make this newspaper, this news outlet, better mirror our community. So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, let me first talk about that photo. It, it was a great photo and a great moment. And uh, right, there were people on Twitter, though, who said, man, that guy's uh, in there alone, huh? <laughs> Which <laughs> not true. Uh, it was just an angle. And I wound up actually going on Twitter saying, well, here are some other photos of that day, which, of course, show the diversity of our newsroom. And I will just say that about our newsroom. I think our diversity does outpace uh, the industry at large. Um, I think that journalism at large has a diversity problem. There is no doubt about that. Uh, if you look at uh, this community and look at our, well, let me start. If you look at our, our organization, uh, I think that we compare favorably with most anyone in this business when it comes to diversity, uh, especially any legacy outlet, we compare favorably. Uh, more than a third of our journalists are, are racial minorities. And um, that's, that's a, a big number compared to an industry where sometimes it's single digits. So we are we are doing way better than the industry, but you know, really, this isn't about us comparing um, the AJC to the industry. It's about uh, doing right by our community, and so we want to be reflective of our community, and we put a premium on some of that in our hiring and our promotion and our uh, development. Uh, I think we've had a pretty good track record of the past couple of years, where uh, thinking about the newsroom of the future, we've gotten younger. Uh, we've gotten more diverse in many ways. Uh, if you look at the number of women that we've hired over the past couple of years, uh, it has been, uh, it's, it's been predominantly women, actually, if you look at the numbers. So there are some things that we're looking at in order to be able to do all the things you want to do. If you think about what, is journalism, what, is, what does a journalism organization need to do to serve its community? You look at reflecting it in a lot of ways and also thinking about all the demographic points you have to touch. And some of them are not as obvious. Uh, for example, <laughs> I was in a, a leadership meeting where uh, we were having a discussion. And there was only one person in that room with young children. <laughs> and they made a very good point from the perspective of a parent who has uh, children who are really younger school age children uh, who are at the elementary and middle school level. Uh, but it was raising a hand to say, well, you know, the timing of this may not be good because if you're a parent, you have this. So diversity serves you in ways that are expected and in ways that are unexpected. And we were being mindful of that. Leroy, when I heard the news that you were going to take over as editor when Andrew Morse announced it, um, I I think I told you, first of all, I was so excited because I'm like, oh, that's awesome. He's amazing. This is going to be great, um, uh, particularly because you came out of the state and you have a political background and you kind of get it. You get news, you get all the stuff. Um, but then also having grown up in Atlanta, 
to me, the editor of the AJC what is and has always been a huge leader in this community and who it is really, really matters. And so for you to take over this job, I really in that moment was just so proud of Atlanta. I really was. I just, um, it's been a long time coming. And for you to be the person to lead the newspaper at this time, to me, just made me so happy to be here at this moment and even to be at the paper um, is an extra bonus. But it also struck me, it is, they're huge shoes to fill. Not just Kevin Riley, who is so adored in the newsroom and so respected, but also somebody like Ralph McGill, who Mm -hmm. won a Pulitzer, and Reg Murphy, who was literally kidnapped because of the kind of coverage that the AJC was doing. It was so brave and despised simultaneously that he was in physical danger. So how do you approach that piece of it? Also, because you are the first Black editor, there was so much reaction to it in journalism circles all over the country. Do you put that out of your mind or does it inspire you to have all of those expectations with the job? It's there, it's such a piece of it that I don't think people really fully understand. Yeah. So um, I am appreciative of uh, one, what it means historically, right? Because uh, no one who looks like me has been here and we're in the South. So we're talking about uh, someone who can trace their family roots to colonial America. So I, I can do that. So I have a very Southern American uh, story. So I understand it and I understand how people in our community are saying this is, they see this as progress. And also uh, I'm getting a pretty warm embrace from a lot of other African-Americans who always celebrate when African-Americans go where none has ever been. <laughs> so I'm getting that, that honeymoon period of, But, you know, there's always expectation, right, Uh, which I embrace. And so I'm aware of the history. And I think that we've had dynamic leadership uh, at this newspaper that has made it essential and award winning. And we've navigated uh, lots of of storms, uh, you know, both theoretically and and, and actually literally. Uh, And so when I think about Kevin Riley, for example, and what he's done to uh, be a calm example of leadership during a time of tremendous change. Uh, that is something to live up to. Um, but also, too, I think that there's kind of a moment where things work out maybe the way they should. So I am bringing something else, a different perspective to uh, to the job because of my own life experience. Uh, that is the life experience of a black Southerner. But it's also life experience of a Southerner, too. So if you think about the last a few editors, I think it's been uh, a long, long time since a Southerner has actually led this newsroom. Uh, if we look at the last three, for example, um, none of them were, were Southern. And uh, my good friend, Kevin Riley, who uh, has spent uh, the past 13 years here in the South, uh, he's still an Ohio guy. and He's probably wearing a, a Cleveland Browns undershirt right now. <laughs> so he is <laughs> he's an Ohio guy. Uh, whereas uh, I would never, never defile myself with something that was uh, from Ohio. <laughs> I'm Amen. a Southerner. So um, I, I, I'm a Southerner who is, uh, um, you know, I don't quite use the term carpetbagger, but I will tell you this, that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, my experience is here. And I certainly uh, have uh, been, uh, you know, grown and I'm steeped 
in the history of what it means to be uh, a Southerner. So as I think about all the things that, that I would bring that perhaps uh, has not been here either for a while, Southerness or ever, uh, being an African-American, um, I think it'll do a couple of things uh, that I think will be useful. Uh, one is there's an accessibility, I think, that some people, um, I think, have questioned with the AJC. I, I kind of mentioned at the beginning the Atlanta test cheating scandal. Uh, that really divided Black Atlanta, right? And then you have the AJC, who is at the center of all of this, this very powerful institution that itself uh, feels sort of nameless, faceless, and let's face it, institutionally white. And you've got race as an undercurrent to all of this stuff with APS. And so it did create some tension points that, you know, I don't think me being the editor would mean there would be less tension. But maybe it, it makes it easier to sort of go into a community and talk about why we're doing it, because you sort of diffuse some of the suspicion that this is meant as harm when it's actually meant uh, just the opposite. A, a community um, benefits from a newspaper telling it the truth. I mean, that is our love language. That's what we do. And that's exactly what that story did. And so, you know, maybe in those situations, uh, you know, there's there's some of that. And I'll say this, too. I mean, when you look at this dynamic city where African-Americans come from all over to come and succeed, uh, there is a leadership class here that is that is African-American. And some of them are kind of just like me. Right. So when you think about some of the first. <laughs> so um, my, my phone is full of some first uh, the first uh, commissioner to uh, run Gwinnett County, who is an African-American, you know, us, we, and we're both uh, members of Leadership Gwinnett, by the way. So if, as we compare notes, there is some similarity there. So if you think about that story across our metro area, uh, I do have a little bit of a kinship with some of those folks. And I hope that makes for the kind of dialogue that, that I think is essential for us to be who we are at our core. Uh, we want to be part of the solution. And so being able to relate and talk, talk things out and also be able to explain why we're doing something might make it a little bit easier uh, to do than perhaps before. Let's talk about how you plan to turn that vision into reality. How, how you plan to extend or expand or morph uh, AJC's coverage of key areas over the next year or two. I mean, what is your sort of vision for different areas that we should be covering more and areas we might want to refocus some of our resources away from? So that's a, a, a long discussion. Uh, we are at the beginning of it. <laughs> but I will tell you this, though, um, and this is uh, it's critical and uh, some of it's kind of obvious, but some of it, I think, is, is why we're bullish on um, uh, what we're what our plan is long term to continue to be essential to Georgia and Atlanta is that uh, there is an audience for what we do and the topics we cover. Uh, we know there are some key topics uh, that will encourage or at least entice people to pay. Uh, there are some places where there are you know, news deserts where people desire news. And if we can show up and provide that, uh, we think there's a lot of opportunity with that too. But I think the core thing is going to be Atlanta. I mean, really, this is the beating heart of Georgia in many ways. And that's not uh, to say that uh, rural Georgia, which you know, again, I'm a South Carolinian, so I have a, a good sense of what rural South is. Um, and it's defined a, a lot of my family, as a matter of fact. Uh, but when you think about the, uh, the, the city itself, uh, that's where we, we that's where we go first. 
then we start thinking about Georgia at large. Uh, so I think there's opportunity there. So if there is some investment, it, it, it probably is going to be and certainly will be in looking to places outside of the core of Metro Atlanta uh, to begin having a presence. So, so those are uh, great opportunities. And I think topically, we know that there are some things that uh, have interest beyond um, Atlanta. So uh, our politics does. Um, I think our coverage of some business does. Uh, our, if we, as we build out entertainment, we think it will have uh, resonance beyond Atlanta. Uh, and um, I think that the issue of you know, black culture and this as being a culture leader that that has uh, some resonance beyond Atlanta. So if you think about those as being investments, geographically, core to state, and then thinking about it topically as being things that can go beyond that, meaning that um, we know that there are is an appetite beyond uh, Georgia for our politics, for example. Uh, we have a two things to do. One, invest in terms of building capacity, and two, uh, the marketing of it. Uh, so folks know that we have and are investing and in that we will be able to provide those things uh, for them. Uh, we do those two things. Uh, we will build our audience and we build that audience. I think that is the key to sustainability. And a really quick follow-up, black culture, uh, Southern culture, that is an area where you are almost immediately trying to uh, you know, expand our coverage by hiring new editors to sort of oversee those, those topics. Yeah. So we've, um, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while I and mean, we hired uh, someone, uh, Asia Page, to sort of cover culture. And she's real, relatively new, but she's starting to do some things and we will have some more hires and we will have some a leadership role to get us into some strategy decisions that we'll have to make. But it is a place that we strongly feel we've got a, a right to win and certainly the proximity. And of course, who Atlanta is. I mean, it strikes to identity, right? I mean, if we think about who Atlanta is, uh, that is what is being sold to the world. <laughs> and it is, uh, it, it, it's elemental. Uh, it is so entrenched that uh, I remember a couple of years ago looking at a video and it was the Atlanta chamber because they were looking to entice, you know, what everyone wants, right? Young tech workers. I mean, so this is a great place for young tech workers. So the young tech worker video wasn't about, well, here's Georgia Tech, here's Google, here's Microsoft. Uh, it was all of it was uh, hip hop music. And here's where you can go have fun. And if you want to be young and have and live a vibrant life, come to Atlanta. And the backdrop and soundtrack was hip hop. Right. <laughs> so so I say that to say because it was really uh, one of those things that was like, wow, I mean, this is how people consume Atlanta beyond Atlanta. Right. And I think also, too, to when the Super Bowl was here. Right. And so the Super Bowl, as as, as we all uh probably largely ignore the six hours of coverage before, but because it was in Atlanta, I watched a ton of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I watch all the Super Bowl pregame as Atlanta and the backdrop of, you know, all the landmarks of what defines Atlanta, the network television programs came in and the spokespeople for Atlanta uh, beyond like the mayor and Andrew Young and, you know, the governor and people like that who they had on, uh, all of them seem to be, uh, folks who are more in entertainment. So it was Jermaine Dupree and you know, people like that who were all these people that they brought in who were spokespeople for Atlanta. And they did a great job of representing Atlanta as a place where people sh want to come, a, a vibrant place where there is success to be had. And also you had the amenities of 
all this industry that's behind it um, and all these things that were going on. So it was uh, it was pretty telling. Never mind that Maroon 5 was the headliner of that halftime show that year, but let's, <laughs> let's ignore that. That is, that is an injustice <laughs> that uh, I think, one, is unforgivable. So uh, the NFL really fumbled on that one. And I don't know if there's any recovery. Uh, the only way they can recover from that is they need to award us another Super Bowl. <laughs> and instead of letting Jermaine Dupree uh, organize the music on the outside, which was kind of their way of making good because he organized all the concerts outside of the Super Bowl leading up to it, let him do the halftime show. And then they'll be forgiven. Okay. Then they'll be forgiven. Uh, <laughs> so, Leroy, as we are wrapping up, I think what's so fascinating about the role of a local newspaper editor, even of a large regional daily, which is what uh, the AJC is, it's a lot of micro focus and a lot of macro focus. And I have been kind of obsessed by the news last week that BuzzFeed news has basically gone under after $700 million of investment. The news business is very difficult. That's just the reality. So you're going to get asked this a million times when you're the editor, because you'll go to conferences and they'll say, here's Leroy Chapman to solve the riddle. Um, <laughs> what what do you think is the future of media in this country? And where does a place like the AJC fit into that landscape? So it, here's my great hope. And I, and I hope this doesn't sound too ambitious, but I hope the AJC is part of the, uh, the solution, part, part of sh- demonstrating what the solution is. But I think there are things that are pretty clear, even if you think about BuzzFeed, who look at the organization, it made its bets on let's draw a big audience and you can monetize it. Right. Uh, But that didn't ever get them to loyalty, did not get them to what I think a local news needs is subscribers. I mean, that's never changed. And so uh, there wasn't a BuzzFeed subscription product that that, that leveraged the loyalty of that core group of people who maybe loved what they, what they did and did not um, encounter BuzzFeed as a place that they, because they were in social media and their news feeds fed them stuff, that they happened to be sort of incidental to their news diet instead of being essential to it, right? So, so I think the solution is this. I mean, we have to be essential and demonstrate that every day that your news diet uh, is incomplete without us. And we have to do that uh, in a way that newspapers sometimes haven't because newspapers have struggled with marketing and promotion and those things. But those are are essential. We have to do better at that. But I think the things that we do better than anyone else, which I think is depth and being local and having that proximity, will have continuing value always. Uh, And we are not going to be like we were when we were covering the South like the do and we were producing newspapers and we were doing it statewide and all of that. I mean, the digital um, aspect of that is going to change, but it also presents opportunity. So right now what we're doing is market sizing and we feel really good about that. We think that we have opportunity again, uh, untapped opportunity right here in our market uh, because we've essentially have been shifting from being very print-based and print-focused and that that's our subscription base. And we are very slowly but steadily and surely going to a digital subscription model uh, that uh, is that more incoming subscribers are choosing that uh, more than two to one than they are to print. So 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 I think for local news as ecosystem, it's, it's just that um, leverage your advantages, which is local proximity, all those things. 
being authentic with the groups that are right here in your community. And the other thing is that you have to be good enough and you have to be essential enough to get people to pay. Now, that's not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not easy. But, but it has to happen, though. So I say that because if you look at the, the advertising markets and the old model from newspapers, um, the ad dollars are just not substantial enough. And the durability of big, big audiences that would support enough ad dollars, they're kind of fleeting. So the thing that is that you can control most is you um, serve a community, you are relentless with it, you communicate with them and you and, and you get them to pay. And once they pay, you keep them in the boat. Relentlessly <laughs> serve. Simple. Right. I know it sounds simple, but and, and, but it's not. It's, it's a simple concept, but it's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, but that's kind of what we do best. Relentlessly serve, <laughs> relentlessly report on our right. communities. Well, Leroy, thank you so much for joining this special edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. For our listeners, hope you enjoyed hearing from our former and our current editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Well, I want to thank you guys, too. Uh, I just wanted to share this with you, that uh, I, I was listening to you guys uh, two days after the announcement was made that I had the job, and you guys were very gracious to me, and I just wanted to thank you. And so I was doing it while I was in, on my hands and knees in my yard pulling weeds. <laughs> so, so I'm listening to you guys. That's and I'm a like, great oh, metaphor. <laughs> I'm in my, in my yard, and, and, and I'm listening to this, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is so gracious, and I'm appreciative of you. And then my neighbor pulls up, and he rolls down his window, and he goes, hmm, so the editor of the Land Journal Constitution has to pull his own weeds, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> why, well, yes, because if I don't, they don't get pulled. But then he said he had been in his car listening to the news, and that's when he heard <laughs> what was going on. He pulls around, he sees me. But I just want to thank you guys, too, because, uh, one, you were very gracious, uh, and I'm appreciative of it. Uh, I am an avid listener of the podcast, too. And uh, on that day, I got a, a bit of a treat. I want to thank you for that. Oh, that's nice. Well, we, uh, well, we right. first of all, we only were speaking the truth. You know that we only <laughs> deal with the truth here on the Political Georgia podcast. And I literally I love the metaphor that as you are every day in the newsroom, you were literally in the weeds, which is right how <laughs> Down we in know the weeds. you. <laughs> Down and dirty. I like yes, it. I <laughs> Thank you so much, Leroy. Thank Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this special episode with our former editor, Kevin Riley, and our current editor, Leroy Chapman. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment. 
only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.